Well, let's pray as we come to look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the giver of every good gift. And we thank you, Father, that you have promised to speak to us through your living and active word. And we pray as we come to look at it together now, that we would not just be hearers, but doers of it. Transform us for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let me tell you about uh, two friends of mine uh, who came into church many years ago, uh, the church where I was working at the time. Uh, One, Graham, uh, was in his 60s. Uh, He came to me, this is his first first week at church, and uh, after our conversation, he was in tears. Uh, Second guy I want to tell you about also came to church after our conversation that day. He was also in tears. So it was a, well, it wasn't the same day. different days. Why? Well, Graham, in his 60s, um, had come to town, uh, came into church, and uh, he was telling me about his background in church. He was converted at the last Billy Graham crusade in 1979. He went forward and uh, gave his life to Jesus. He'd never been to a church before. That week, he went out and bought himself a big leather-bound Bible, uh, because everyone else was carrying one like that, and he thought that was the right thing to do. Um, and only about a month or so later, he got transferred to a country town. Uh, he was a bank manager. So he arrives in the country town, new bank manager, big leather-bound Bible, walks into a church, and six months later was elected as an elder of the church. Fine, upstanding citizen. He was in that town for 20 years, leading Bible studies, and he told me that what he did, leading Bible studies, was that he would read a commentary during the week, and he would try to talk for the whole hour so that nobody could ask him a question and work out he had no idea what he was talking about. And he'd been at that for 20 years by the time he came to church with me. And, uh, and in his first week, uh, I asked him, how are you going? Uh, would you like to join a Bible study? He says, I don't want to lead a Bible study. He said, don't think I'm going to ask you to lead a Bible study. I haven't even met you yet. And he burst into tears and told me how that's exactly what happened the last church he went to. The other guy who I met who burst into tears, his name was Seth. Uh, Seth had been out of jail for about six months. Uh, He arrived Sunday night on his Harley, parked right up beside uh, the hall, um, all full of prison tats and leather, uh, walks into church and uh, we had a bit of a conversation afterwards. Uh, We had dinner at my place And he also burst into tears. Why did he burst into tears? Well, he was soundly converted in jail. He was living as a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus. In the six months after he'd been uh, out of prison, he he kept on going to churches and everywhere he went, he said, people mobbed me. I walked in and everybody was really friendly. He said, but after a while, I, I just got the idea that I'm making sure I wasn't stealing the silverware. They're just looking over me. Nobody ever invited me to their house. Nobody ever asked me if I was a Christian or how I became a Christian. And he said, you're the first person who's invited me back to their house since I left jail. Two guys come to the same church um, and, uh, and they were welcome, but neither of them had been welcomed in that kind of way before. 
Now, immediately your instincts tell you that there's something wrong about that, isn't there? There's something wrong. It's bad form, isn't it, to treat people so differently because of their out, outward experience. It's just, it's rude, it's impolite, isn't it? But we know we ought to be better than that. It's sad. Well, this morning as we look at James chapter 2, I want to convince you, I want to urge you to see that it's not bad form, it's not sad, it's deadly to treat people like that. It's dangerous and deadly. James chapter 2 verse 1 says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favouritism. Down in verse 9 it says, but if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And as verse 10 and 11 roll on, you see that this is ranked up there with murder and adultery. And if you commit one, you may as well have committed them all. Why is this so serious? Well, let's walk through James chapter 2, 1 to 13. And I want to show you why the stakes are so high with this. Last week, at the end of chapter 1, we were urged not just to be hearers, but doers of the word, not to be polluted by the world, but instead to live out of a, uh, a pure and faultless worship of God, pure and faultless religion. And as we roll into chapter 2, James gives us this example of what it will look like. How trusting Jesus will change the way that you see and treat other people. Verses 1 to 4, we get uh, the example of discrimination against the poor. In verses 5 to 7, we're reminded of how we should look at the rich and poor. And verses 9 to 13, we see what's at stake. What is the nature of of Christian love. James 2.1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? My brothers and sisters, do not show favouritism. The word uh, translated favouritism there carries um, the meaning it's a judgment made on external appearances, on the face of things. And so we notice in the detail that follows, it's all about appearances, isn't it? It's all about the way, the fine um, clothes, the gold ring. That's what you see. And the other man, the shabby clothes, the appearance of the beggar, that's what you see. And this difference in appearance is the basis for treating these two men differently in the example. And although you'd never guess it from the translation, the word in verse 4 there that uh, translated as discriminated is the same word in chapter 1, verse 6, that's translated as doubt. It's from the same root. Uh, and you might remember when we were looking at chapter 1, verse 6, and thinking about doubt, um, I tried to make it clear James is not talking about some kind of intellectual uh, doubt, 
but a double-mindedness that works from two different foundations. I gave the example of the woman who's got a, a foot on the wharf and a foot on the boat and you've got to decide to put both your feet on one or the other. You can't be double-minded and say that you're a follower of God and still actually live out the consequences of, of being an unbeliever, the consequences of unbelief, of worldliness. It's hedging your bets. It's being double-minded. And here in chapter 2, this is an example of that kind of doubt, that wavering, that discrimination, that double-mindedness. Christian people judging and evaluating one another based on the face of things, based on worldly standards of wealth and importance. If you think again back to chapter 1, remember that uh, uh, the brother in humble circumstances is to remember their position of honour and glory. Well, it's hard to do when even the Christians are treating you in a humiliating way, isn't it? Do we do that? Is that what we're like? Are we really just as impressed by the outward show as the rest of the world? Are we that shallow? Do we crave the approval the acceptance of others based on our performance and our appearance? Do we pay more attention to the wealthy and the influential and the beautiful, the successful, even in church? At its heart, the stakes in this are even much higher than that, though, because it's not just a question of how we treat other people but how we treat other people is an indication of our response to God, of our understanding of what God has done for us, of what we believe. It's a question of whether God is really setting our agenda or whether we are double-minded, having our agenda set by the world around us. Look at how God sees the rich and poor from verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom, his promise to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So it's true, isn't it? God consistently chooses the poor and the weak and the fragile and those who are rebelling against him, his enemies, to be his children. I mean, isn't that the good news? Isn't that what you rejoice in, that God has treated you like that? Despite your appearance, despite your qualifications. James' famous older brother once said, blessed are the poor, or the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe the poor are blessed? Do we recognise the demonstrable truth that God disproportionately chooses the poor and the weak and the unattractive of the world? 
to be rich in faith. And in fact, that he has consistently done this through history. I wonder, when you think of the poor, do you see them as people who deserve your pity and your charity? Or do you see them as people who are blessed by God? Now, of course, it's, it's not an either-or. Uh, it, it's a both-end in that point. And one of the ways that the poor of the world can bless us is by giving us somewhere to direct our cash that'll be a help to them and to us. There, 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 there is a blessing in that, in, in charity and giving. But I wonder, do you also see the poor as blessed? As brothers and sisters who might have a great perspective, something to teach us, something to bless us with. I wonder when people are asked to give their testimonies in your church, who gets chosen? Do you know when um, uh, the McCrindle Group did the last survey into spirituality, into belief and faith uh, in Australia, the number two reason that people are repulsed by churches, number one was pedophilia, number two, when successful people are asked to give their testimonies. It's the number two reason why Australians are repulsed by churches. Who gets asked to give testimonies in your church? Is it those who are successful in the eyes of the world? I actually think at this point, unbelievers in Australia have great instincts. They have great instincts to see that there's something perverse and lacking in integrity when we foreground and highlight people on exactly the same basis as the rest of the world, on their appearance on their success, on their wealth, on their attractiveness, the beautiful ones. The people James was originally writing to, unlike God, are doing exactly this, favouring the rich and insulting, dishonouring the poor. The irony in verse 6 is that it's the rich who are exploiting them and dragging them into court and slandering the name of the Lord Jesus and isn't it always like that too. And isn't that basically what's happening today? That the greatest opposition to the gospel in our culture comes from the well-heeled, from the successful, from the honoured, from the powerful, from the rich, not from the poor. And if we're double-minded, we're going to look for worthiness in others And we're going to long that they see us as being worthy as well. We look for people who are worthy of respect, worthy of attention, worthy of our time, worth the effort that it's going to be to get to know them. And we long to be considered worthy by them. We want the rich and famous, the intellectuals, the elite, to say, she's okay, he's okay. But because our relationship with God is based on mercy and not merit, we of all people should know that God does not look for the worthy ones. And neither should we. 
Now, I'm confident you can nod along with that. Of course, that's right. But what does it mean to live in the shadow of that truth, in the shadow of God's mercy? Why would James use this as an example to make a point about what genuine faith is going to look like? I mean, is it anything more than just not being a nice person? Are the stakes really, is it that big a deal? Well, read on with me, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder... You've become a lawbreaker. It's the royal law. Love your neighbour as yourself. And I wonder how your love of self is going. I mentioned last week that uh, I don't spend a lot of time in front of the mirror, which comes a great shock, I know, to all of you. But there are other people here who love it, don't you? Is that you? You wake up in the morning, kind of stumble into the bathroom... Look in the mirror and go, hello, beautiful. <laughs> Great to see you again. Give yourself a wink and get on with the day. Do you find yourself as you're walking down the street, just kind of catching a glimpse in the shop windows, looking good? Is that what it's like for you? You love looking, you see, you love your appearance. If that's you, well, good luck to you. Good luck to you. But most of us aren't like that. Most of us don't see ourselves as being particularly attractive at all. Most of us find it much easier to find the things, or to say the things that we don't like about ourselves rather than the things that we do like about ourselves. And yet, despite that, we eat, we stay warm, we put on clothes. We look after ourselves, even if we don't like the appearance. That's how love of self works. We act in our best interests, not because we love the externals. And that is the kind of love we're encouraged to have for others. Can you imagine that if you show that love to the man in the shabby clothes you would treat him well and take care of him. Not based on the externals. The principle of favouritism is that I get to choose who I will love based on how they appear to me. The principle of the royal law is that I will love everyone regardless of how they appear to the world or to me. So the one who shows favouritism is a lawbreaker, verse 9. And that's why a little bit of favouritism in, in a church is such a big deal. It's not just a dispute between people. It is evidence of people trying to evade God and evade his will. 
living out our faith, living in the shadow of God's mercy, living out of love, will mean trusting ourselves entirely to the mercy of God. Not being double-minded, not hedging our bets, not living out of the convictions of the world, but living out of grace and mercy. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He's saying, act graciously and mercifully. We see at the cross, don't we? Mercy and judgment coming together. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Chapter 1, James warned us that the double-minded person who trusts in God but also trusts in other things instead cannot receive any good gift from God. And here we see that that applies to his mercy as well. If there's someone that you hold a grudge against, that you refuse to forgive, please consider this very carefully. Now, I'm not saying at all that forgiveness is easy or that it should be automatic or quick. Uh, I'm not saying that forgiveness results in things going back to just the way they were. What I'm saying is that harbouring unforgiveness in your heart is is a dangerous, deadly matter. you've got a string of people that you no longer talk to or a grudge that you cherish can I ask you to just feel the weight of that that as you treat others like this judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful Our faith must be lived out even in the painful areas where you might rather hold on to your anger and your desire to get square. We are encouraged to live in the shadow of God's mercy, to live in love, to trust ourselves wholeheartedly to the mercy of God. If you feel the pull of that this morning, and you're struggling to make changes, don't be discouraged that you haven't kind of made it yet, that you're not there. Because God knows your heart and mercy triumphs over judgment. Rejoice that God does not treat us as we deserve. Maybe you do recognise that you actually love the approval of the world. You long to be well thought of, to be admired. Maybe you recognise that you've been in the habit of looking at others just as the world does, saving your love for the lovable, your admiration for the successful, looking with envy at the beautiful and with pity at the poor and despised. Praise God that he did not treat you or me like that. Lean into mercy. 
Press into grace. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Faith conquers death. Jesus is king and he calls us to follow his royal law and love our neighbours as we love ourselves. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your love. We thank you that you have loved us not because we deserve it, not because we're worth it, but because you are merciful. Father, we rejoice in your mercy and we pray that our our consciousness, our awareness of your mercy might grow and grow and that we would live in the shadow of that mercy, that we would reflect that mercy and that we would love our neighbours as we love ourselves. And we pray it for Jesus' glory. Amen.